Hello, this is Janet Gallen welcoming you to Love Letters Live. And today's guest is a friend of mine, David Brower, and actually also the son of one of my dearest friends in my life. And I'm so glad, David, that you and I kind of picked up the picked up the friendship and stayed with it. Let's can we talk mm -hmm. about can we can we start off with your background? Because I think that's important as mm -hmm. far as how you got to where you are now in looking for love and expressing love and being able to do it. So you're from a significant theatrical background, people we all know. Would you like to just talk about that? Sure, first of all, I'm just so delighted to be here with you. This is beautiful and um, I'm glad that we're carrying the torch. Me too. <laughs> We've taken the baton and we're carrying the torch. Yeah. Gosh, where to your, start? Your, your father would be so pleased. Oh, you. yeah, I'm sure he's listening. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I grew up in a, in a Hollywood family, a Hollywood theatrical performance family, uh, both the performer side and the, and the business side. And uh, you know, you like, I, are you comfortable saying who they are? Because they're people that I happen to really like. So, well, I'm not sure who you're referring to, but my dad is Mitchell Brower. And he was married to my my mom. Uh, gosh, Florence Patricia Pope. Uh, I guess we call her um, Tricia Brower or Tricia Strauss afterwards, etc. Uh, those are my direct uh, family, of course. Um, and uh, yeah, so I grew up in in that in that environment, and with the people in that world, uh, and actually in a for a large part in in Beverly Hills also. And, you know, have the experience of being kind of that, you know, stuff we see on television, right? And in the movies and everything, which has its ups and its downs and its good and its bad sides. And at some point I decided I just couldn't really handle to be in that world. It was too, there's too much ego and too much pressure. And uh, what, what were I, the pressures on you? Well, you know, there's a lot of money in, in Beverly Hills, right? And that whole LA world and everything. And it's very ostentatious and very in your face. And, you know, it challenges your perception of, of your self-value, of your self-worth, of, you know, you're in comparison, you're in FOMO, fear of missing out. You're, mm -hmm. you know, you sometimes don't feel good enough. You never know what is enough. Uh, you know, when you have 16 year old kids coming to high school driving Lamborghinis and Ferraris, <laughs> you know, it kind of twists your, and you don't even have a car. Yes. And it's not that you're poor, but the relativity of it is just, you know, and this was before social media, right? Yes. So, but it, it I think it plays a bit with your sense of uh, self-worth. So and, at, and at some stage in your young life, you knew that you needed to be off on your own and define yourself? Well, I kind of got pushed into that a little bit just because, I mean, it was like kind of a big transition in my life from grammar school to high school. I was a really small kid. Oh. Uh, you know, I was like under five feet tall until I was 17 or 18, which is pretty darn small. And yet I was really athletic. But the transition from grammar school to high school was horrible for me because uh, I got into the school where all the kids were much bigger. Uh -huh. And so I, I didn't get on to any of the sports teams. So my whole life at that time, because I didn't really care about school, my whole life at that time got shattered. And, you know, I didn't meet any girls really anymore. My like self-esteem just got ruined, right? 
And I didn't really feel like I was, I could find my place. And I, I lost friends because of drugs, because they would all take drugs and they just uh-huh. like, got sick all the time and had to, so I like lost everything. I actually spent a year, year and a half in high school, kind of almost with no friends. Like I'd lost all my existing friends. So, so it was very, very- that, that's such a terrible time to be in that predicament. <sighs> Yeah. Horrible. I mean, they talk about your formative years being one through five or something. I say nonsense. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I agree. I, for me, it was high school. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For me, it was totally high school. So, but it taught me suddenly I had to figure out how to kind of survive, how to connect with people in a different way. Um, and I started really looking at that. And I had to go out and do sports outside of school, like do Taekwondo. I had to show up at six o'clock in the morning and do jogging, like anything to just kind of get it in because there was nothing else I could do. Well, and so I started your, to your, learn to be independent. Okay, but I, just to go back for a minute, um, mm-hmm. knowing your father as I do, and of course knowing a friend is different than knowing a father. Oh, yes. What, <laughs> sure. If you can say, if you're comfortable saying, or if it makes sense, what was your parents' reaction to the torment you were going through in high school? Or did you keep it stifled? Well, you know, I mean, let's put it in perspective. My parents got divorced earlier, right? I was about seven or eight. And, uh-huh. and then my mom got remarried when I was maybe 12. So I'd had sort of a new stepfather there, but I didn't see my dad much more than on weekends that I can remember. But did you talk to him about what was going on or was that? I don't even terrible? remember at huh. the time who I spoke with. I have very little memories about about who was able to to kind of help me through uh, sure. that. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I talked a bit to my parents, but I mean, you know, like there was not much we could do about my size. I remember going to the doctors with my mom. The doctor said, well, we can give them hormones and things. My mom was like, absolutely not. Right. You, know, you can stifle the growth in that way. Um, and I don't know, my, my dad wasn't really around too much during at yeah. least the years in that period there. So, and he was doing his own thing and, you know, which is, which was fine. Uh, uh, I just, and I don't know, I don't, I, I just, I got kind of lost. I got really lost and sucked into, into that and, and just kind of felt like it was almost normal, I guess. I mean, everyone seemed to be going through their own. I think what you're saying is true. I think whatever we have in life is the wallpaper. It's the normal. Yes. So at some point you, I just want to move it along to when you did find love and you found the girl. Did you, move, <laughs> did you move to France for, I mean, I remember you as a child, you and your sister and you're all being in San Francisco and we went on the, the boat and yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, remember, I remember that day very, very well. And then kind of next I heard, well, talk about moving to France. Did you do that on your own first and then meet the woman who became your wife? Yes, yes. No, I didn't know anyone when I moved to France. I mean, to put it in perspective, I, because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, and I'd studied political science only because it's the most creative thing you can study, right? I mean, you know, politicians are the most creative people making up all sorts of stuff. It's great. They're, they're genius. So I was like, wow, this is pretty creative. I can do this. And so uh, I thought I was heading to go to law school. I take the LSAT, do horribly and it's a sign from the universe, it's not here. You know, don't follow the Joneses and take a break. And my dad, who had been trying to make a movie 
um, 20 years earlier about the love affair between Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre. Ah. Uh, had a lawyer that had helped get the script to them that he had met. So he called in 20 years later, this lawyer to say, could you give my uh, son a little job just to kind of get started? Uh-huh. And so I was in a mailboy job uh, there for the first uh, Where? three months in Paris. Oh, so, okay. So but, you went, uh-huh. So, so three weeks after I got out of college, I'm on a plane, I arrive in Paris and I start with this job. Uh, uh, after that, I got, I took a little b- b- break, a little summer break traveling with friends and stuff. And then when I came back, we actually, uh, I'd found a job in a, a company called the Wall Street Institute, which is an English teaching school like the iconic English teaching school in, in France. And so uh, there I was teaching in advertising agencies. So I'd go to the agencies, big, the big American ones, like DDB Needham and Gray and Rubicon and BBDO and all these kinds of things. And uh, that's actually where I met my, uh, the woman that I would marry. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's kind of how it, happened and it was such a great time because I worked very little at this English teaching because people would cancel all the time. So I would have all this free time to just roam around Paris, hang out in cafes, speak with people, learn the language, listen. And I really immersed myself by not doing the expatriate thing. I went and just surrounded myself by French people. Now tell us a little bit about her. Because- about, And yes. Yes, well, you know, the, the, at some point I heard from your dad, that you were marrying a woman in France, and she was significantly older than you, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And I mean, how did that? How did that work? I mean, were your were your parents concerned at all, or just plain happy for you? I think everyone was a little bit concerned. I mean, you know, to put it in perspective, it was really. Um, I have to be delicate how I say this. You know, we were in love. Yes. And we were, you know, after a year together, you know, we were living together and we, we had a life. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, I was having troubles getting like my next carte de séjour, you know, my visa to be able to stay and everything. Oh. And so I said, well, why don't we just get married in this way? That'll take care of that. So it's kind of a green card thing, right? Uh, and so that's what we did. We trusted each other and we were. Well, it was a green card thing with you know, somebody you loved. So that. Yeah, no, exactly. Yes, right. But so much so that, and you probably heard about this, I mean, so much so that I told my whole family not to come to Paris for the, for the wedding, because there was, first of all, there wasn't really a wedding. You know, we went to the mayor's office and signed some papers and had some witnesses. And then we had a party at, at our home, mm-hmm. um, you know, with 50 people or something. I remember and that was it. There wasn't a big, you know, kind of thing. But I, I literally told everyone not to come. And I remember fighting with my dad a bit about that. He's like, what are you talking about? You know <laughs> and, you know, I look back and I wonder if that was the right thing to do. I don't I don't know. But that just shows you at what point really it was kind of seen from that perspective. Well, and, at the you time. Were, and you were an age, an age at an age where you were making your own adult man decisions. Yeah, we make your own decisions in it. You I, know, I have a question. It was, about- it was risky. It was risky looking at, our, you know. You mean telling, not pe- telling people well, not to come? No, not that, but like our difference of age, um, you know, who knows what could happen. But I mean, this is what life is 
about if you follow your heart and you trust in your soul. And you okay, so I, I want to zero so. in on that <laughs> your heart because I can see from what you were saying, you know, you talked about, well, in connection with the book you've just written, and we can get to that in a minute, um, you talk about spending a large part of your life looking for love. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that surprised me because you're such a lovable fellow. <laughs> and I couldn't imagine that you just didn't find it every which way you turned. Now I hear that you're talking about how it was in high school and I can see that you were looking for love. And yeah, I, I mean, that, that makes sense now. And yeah. so you, you got married and you, I know you had a wonderful life with this woman you loved. And then I saw, oh, I, I tell you, it broke my heart. I saw a post that you had put on Facebook that she left you. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, this is just terrible. I mean, what, what happened? Why did she leave him? Mm. I assumed that meant she left you and maybe found somebody else or I don't know what. And yeah. then when we got together after that, in conversation, I realized that she had died. Mm. And that's how she left you. And it just broke my heart to hear this. Mm. I mean, the yeah, ultimate exactly. leaving. And talk about life from there and what yours was like. And looking, you talk about looking for love again and trusting yourself. And mm -hmm. talk about all that because that's important when people have lost a mate. Yeah. Um, I don't know, you know, I have a very close friend whose wife had died many years ago and you know, I was just trying to fix him up all the time with adorable women. And he finally said, you know, I'm just not ready to move on. And there's an issue for you. How, how do people know when they're ready to move on? That's a very personal decision, firstly. It's sure. like, no one can impose that upon you. No one can- But what were you, what are the signs you know, that you were- Guide you along in that. Uh, for me, it's the desire to to keep living life and loving life and savoring it and enjoying it and and I know being involved with someone romantically is a is a really uh, important part of that for me. Yes. You know, the whole high school episode of my life, uh, I don't really look back on it like this so much now, but you know, I did feel like that period of my life, like I didn't have any romantic love, like I didn't have a girlfriend in high school, you know. I mean, how screwed up is that, right? Um, at least from my perspective. Well, I, mean, I, think, I think I'm, a lot I'm of an, I'm an okay-looking guy. Yeah. <laughs> I can articulate, and you know, I'm kind of fun. You know, um, you know, I'm a good person. At least I think so. So anyway, you know, they, I, somehow it felt like there was something really like missing from my uh, from my life. Like there was something I had to make up for, or something like this. So so anyway, it's you know. You know, I know when that that my beloved would want me to be yes. you know, reconnecting with love on yeah. my timing and in my way. And that that's a gift from her and a gift from me to her. Right. And, you know, so, that's what we're really important. here for is to just, you know, be resilient and to come back again. That's what being alive is, is huh. to come back, come back again, again, and trust again. And okay, it gets broken, our heart gets broken again. And it's, it's surely going to happen to me. I mean, it's, you know, that's, that's just kind of how it, 
how it is and and to just navigate and it's not so obvious for me i mean i was married for 27 years oh, i know so it's like you know i mean really that's the the longest obviously longest i'm married more than all my parents had ever been married right. Right. <laughs> i'm married more more than most people have been you know yeah. beauti- yeah. beautifully married so i think i think you've got a good feel for and i think maybe this is an important part of moving on is to know that if you love somebody Again, you love somebody new. It does not take anything away from the love you had for the person you're no longer with. Absolutely. And I I suppose in some ways, it's almost like when I changed countries the first few years, I was in a horrible comparison mode. Like, Why do they do things like that here? They do it like this there. You know, you do this a little bit. And I think in, you know, romantic relationships, probably there's a part of that that happens. So it's a little bit of a mindset and an openness to Oh say, yeah, that whole, know, that whole, that whole, it's going to be different. Yeah, it's that be whole different. attitude of, well, my yeah. first wife never did that. Yeah, no, you're, you're like, you know, that's like the worst thing you could say to somebody, <laughs> you know, or do some kind of comparison thing. I mean, maybe think it, but even that, I mean, cause we're all different. This said, what, what I feel is most interesting is, you know, there are so many qualities that I loved about uh, the woman, the human, the soul that I was with, uh-huh. and there, those are qualities that I would, that I still would like to have in somebody, uh, and there's sure. lots of them. And as I, you know, meet other, other women, other other people, uh, and just have my own ideas and fantasies, or like desire for something different, or you know, whatever, you know, I think you get a sense of like the possibility and the abundance that life can offer us and even though we're all unique and I totally believe that and I want to feel that way with somebody you know to be uniquely desired I do believe that we can be you know reaching out to receive the and recognize these qualities in other people which lots of people okay so you know let's use that as the segue to your book because that the title of your book you say it's dance of the love caterpillars I yeah. can see it here. And, you, I, you know, I read it and I was struck by a couple of sides. <laughs> it is so lovely. I, I was struck by a couple of things. Mm. One was the, the two caterpillars going up opposite falling branches over the, they were willing to risk death to get to each other, or they were not aware of death as a, as a, risk to get to each mm-hmm. other they focused only and the other thing that really struck me and probably intentional but you say that while i was reading this book about this these two caterpillars i was so caught up in the moment of their finding each other that it never occurred to me and it came as kind of a thud in my heart to realize that they were going to go through something that made them too completely different creatures. Mm. They were going to become butterflies. They were going to go into a cocoon and come out different. And would they still be appropriate for each other? Yeah. That, that really struck me as an issue that is, you know, is true of people who, um, yes, who go through a variety of steps and, and passages in life and they're not the same people as they were 30 years ago when we met them. 
-hmm. neither are we. And what impact does that have on love? So you. Yeah, that's a, a beautiful part of this story. And, Isn't it you know, cat caterpillars, when they go into the chrysalis and they have this metamorphosis, what's really fascinating is it's not a transformation. It's literally a metamorphosis. It's like it's like yeah. the entire DNA becomes a whole new soup. Yes. And, and then what? To enable this rebirth. What? Yeah. And I mean, you know, there's such a mystery there of what happens and how can they even possibly know what that will be like? Like no one's come back from the other side, right? To tell them. They, they, they also, you know, like most of us, so. they don't know that they're going through changes that will be forever. Yeah, do, yeah you don't well, that's know. That's true of all of us, isn't it? And you don't know if, again, like if you go through such a, a metamorphosis, uh, like will we even recognize each other? Will we... Huh. Still break my, together, break really, my heart further. Yes. You know, if we do this, and yet, what if this is our destiny? What if, because we're drawn to this, what if, what if we don't have a choice? What if we do have a choice and one wants it, but one doesn't? It's such a, such an allegory to, to, to life. You know, we have almost a tendency in love relationships and other relationships, like you don't try and stretch too much out of the status quo. Because right. it, you know, what if you grow and the other person kind of can't uh -huh. somehow uh -huh. respect that or honor that right. or in their own way, you know, kind of keep the dance going yeah. between you. If on one part of you, you decide that you want to have something else, you want to experiment with something else. It's, it's really tricky. It really is tricky. Really so risky. Tell, tell me, tell me how people could get this book, because as we're talking about it. I am seeing something that I didn't even see as I was reading it, being an adult as I am. But this is a wonderful book for children and to teach children about love and change. Yeah. Where do we find this book? How can people get it? Uh, you can find it on Amazon, obviously okay, around good. the world. You can also find it on uh, bookshop.org. Okay. which I wanted to, in the United States, I wanted to make available to people who wanted to support their local bookstores is another way to access it. And I will say there's an exquisite, uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to it uh, yet, Janet, uh, an exquisite audio version. So it's me narrating and telling the story, which is accompanied by a really exquisite, uh, original, originally composed music soundtrack by okay. Viara Ivanova Dietrich. And it's really, you can listen to a minute sample of it up on Amazon. Okay. That, you know, it's I, just I, a completely different way to experience the story. And interestingly, as you were just kind of saying, you're like revisiting the story. People are rereading it multiple times. Which I is can see why. So, and I think, yeah. you know, I think about baby gifts. And I happen to <laughs> like the idea of giving a newborn a book that that child will grow into. Wow, yeah. You know, you're too young for it now, but hold on, you know. Yeah. You'll be there soon and then you'll be driving. Okay. Yeah. So, being about love letters as I am, if you were to write one right now, who would it be to? Who would it be to? Wow. Is it going to sound horribly egotistical if I say it's to myself? <laughs> no, no. And by the way, letter, I, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. I encourage that, by the way. <laughs> writing a love letter to yourself is fabulous yeah. and and 
Yes, I hope you do it. And by the way, when you write that love letter to yourself, there is something about patting yourself on the back as a way of reinforcing the good that you have done in this life and, and what you've come through. And I think mailing it to yourself, you put it in an envelope and you address it to yourself and you stamp it and you send it. And when it comes to you, yes, you open it and read it and you will see, happens all the time, that the you who wrote it is different from the you who reads it. Hmm. That's beautiful. I'll It'll be that. an eye opener for you. And then you yeah. can put it in your, I don't know, whatever, stick it in your, stick it in your desk drawer. Mm. And someday generations from now, somebody's going to find it. Yeah. Yes. You have nieces That's and beautiful. nephews and cousins. Well, I know you have a cousin. There, there is something uh, that, I mean, if, when people are comfortable doing this to write a letter to yourself mm-hmm. and think, you know, dear David, I'm writing this to you, but I'm going to send it to, Jennifer, I'm going to send it to whoever it is in your life, just so they'll mm-hmm. know how I ended up. Mm. Nice. Oh, I hope you, I hope you do that. There's so yes. many possibilities. Well, I want to <laughs> thank, thank you. you for doing this with me. It's a pleasure to see you here. Absolutely. And, um, we'll get together for lunch soon. Sounds great. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, dear. Is, there, is there any last minute little thing you would like to say about your book or. Um. Have we done a complete job? You know, it's, it's, I just want to say one of the other messages of the book is really in spite of all that we've spoken about is to just savor, savor the moment, savor life. Yes. You know, get as much pleasure, even if it's purposeful for you. Um, You know, that's a performant life for me really is just savor, savor, savor. We just never know for ourselves and others what's, Yes. what can happen so i just i read something just actually today i found it among my papers and it said it's never it's it's never um it's always the right time to do a kindness because mm. you never know when it will be too late and I, I think that is true of you know ourselves also we've got to be kind of charitable yeah okay thank you you've become a wonderful man i'm happy to oh, say and i'll talk to you later thank you. okay thank you Cheers. bye <laughs> Bye.